0: I'm going to be starting a new series. Um, for the next little while, we're going to be looking at the book of Jonah. You know, it's a very well-known story, and um, I think we're going to be encouraged as we look at this book. Um, and I've chosen this book for a few reasons. One, it's a bite-sized book. In other words, if I would take Isaiah, that's quite a significant. Book it has that's why it's called the major prophet. By the way, Isaiah, Ezekiel, um, Jeremiah; those are major prophets, not because they have a more important message, because they're sizable books. But the book of Jonah or Micah or Malachi um, is a uh, smaller, they're smaller books, and therefore they're called minor prophets for that reason. And secondly, the, uh, the story of Jonah is a fascinating story. You know, many, of it, many think it's a fable. Um, Jonah and the whale, they call it. Even though Scripture does not call the fish that actually swallowed Jonah a whale, but rather a sea creature that was appointed by God. It was a special creature that God designed for Jonah, and, uh, but most people remember it as Jonah and the whale. So it's a fascinating story and one that's captured the imagination of children and adults alike. And there have been many interpretations on this book throughout the ages. And then thirdly, the um, story itself, the story of Jonah is used by Jesus as a type of his burial and his resurrection. And as you know, Easter weekend is just around the corner, and so it is fitting that we also um, delve into this book because of that. For example, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says this about the uh, type that Jonah serves as. Jesus answered and said to them, being the Jews, An evil and adulterous generation craves a sign. Jews always wanted a sign because Moses gave them a sign that he was indeed sent by God. And so they required a sign that indeed Jesus was the Messiah. No sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. So notice, that's the sign. For just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea monster or sea creature, they're interpreted the same way, for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. So Easter really uh, dovetails well with the book of Jonah because Jonah's experience foreshadows Christ's burial and resurrection. So I encourage you, to read the book of Jonah, to go through it several times. There are very few chapters, and the home groups will be also delving into, uh, in tandem with the Sunday messages into this book. And may the Lord give us grace to glean all the truths that God wants us to learn so that we could treasure them, and they will impact us so that we may walk with the Lord. And if you're not in a home group, I encourage you to join and visit the LCF website to know more about the, uh, which home groups to join. So let's read the first three verses. Will you please stand for the reading of God's Word? We're going to read together uh, Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the Word. Jonah, Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 2 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, cry out against it, because their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And so he went down to Joppa, found a ship that was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and boarded it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Open our eyes to see the wonderful truths you have in store for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated, beloved. So the question we have before us, first of all, is who is Jonah? Jonah. Immediately what stands out, what catches everyone's attention here, is a man who refuses to obey the Lord. God tells him, gives him a very specific command, and he says, no, absolutely not. And disobeying God is never a good thing to do. In fact, it's outright dangerous. So who is this man that dares to disobey God? the creator of the universe. He is a prophet by the name of Jonah. So what is a prophet? Well, a true prophet is someone who speaks on God's behalf to his people. That's who they were there for. And in the Old Testament, we read of many prophets, and they were all sent by God, they were all given a message by God, and they generally, when we read about them, do what God tells them to do. Whether it's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Malachi, Micah, they were prophets sent by God with a message from God, and they spoke to God's people. And there were serious consequences when the servant of the Lord, the prophets, did not carry out what God asked them to do. Uh, There are a few instances when a prophet disobeyed the Lord. You'll remember when Moses, instead of speaking to the rock, and it was the same rock that he had spoken to years earlier, from which flowed a river of water, um, was asked to, not, uh, rather he struck it the first time, he was asked to speak to the rock. And instead he struck it, because he was angry. Struck it twice. And God, from that moment on, said, you're not entering the promised land. Moses pleaded. God said, no. One mistake. (laughs) That was a high standard. We've read, for example, in the past few Wednesdays about an unnamed prophet who left Judah, went up to the northern kingdom of Israel, preached at Bethel, and he was given specific instructions um, not to drink water, not to have any meals, not to stay with anyone, and to return back to Judah using a different road, a different path. And he broke One simple command. That one there, he sat down in someone's house, he had a meal, and he died for that mistake. Uh, That's what happens with a prophet. You disobey, you're punished, and it's severe punishment. That's why James says, do not be many teachers, knowing that we, and he includes himself, shall receive a more severe judgment. So those of us who teach those of us who have a ministry to feed the flock will be more severely judged than those who do not teach. So those who prophesy as a prophet, especially a prophet, they will be severely judged if they do not carry out what God tells them to carry out. So that's what we see in the Old Testament. And so what you have here uh, is um, the life of a prophet, What kind of a life did they live? Well, prophets lived very, very difficult lives. Kings lived in the lap of luxury, but prophets lived in the lap of suffering and rejection. Uh, They lived a life of severe deprivation, of utter self-denial. Look at Ezekiel. God told Ezekiel that his wife would die and that that death would be a message to the people of Judah. And he accepted it. Look at Hosea. He was told to marry a woman that would cheat on him repeatedly. So he had to prepare himself to have, having children with this woman. And then see her leave his house. Have affairs after affairs. And then him bringing her back home. And the people of Israel would look at jo- um, Hosea and say, what are you doing? And then Hosea would turn to them and say, this is how we are with our God. We are unfaithful to him. So his life was a parable, a living illustration of the pain that God was experiencing with his people. That's the life of a prophet. They um, did unthinkable things for the sake of of God's people, giving them messages from the Lord with their own lives. Highly unpopular. You'll remember when Samuel went to Bethlehem to anoint, he didn't know who it was, he knew that it was from the house of Jesse, the future king of Israel. Once he walked into town, the elders came out trembling, it says. They were shaking because the prophet Samuel had walked into their town, Bethlehem, and they were asking themselves, what did we do wrong? Where did we sin? A prophet of God created this angst in people. They were feared, and like I said, highly unpopular. And lastly, whatever message they gave had to be 100% accurate. Now, when you think of many today who call themselves prophets, who um, basically, tell others that they've received a word from the Lord and and please listen because I have a special word from God and and oftentimes they're they're off the cuff. They just don't know what they're saying. They see things that they feel are from God, but there's no real uh, credibility to what they're saying. Living lives, lives of luxury, asking people for money. that's all what most of them do, siphon people for money. You ask yourself, are these truly prophets? They're not. A true prophet hates, hates to be visible. A true prophet does not want to be seen. he's only seen and heard when God sends him to be seen and heard. otherwise he's invisible. they barely speak. they don't want to speak. A prophet that is sent by God is only speaks when God moves him to speak. Otherwise, they pull back. That's a prophet. So the prophets of today do not meet the criteria of a genuine, bona fide prophet as depicted in Scripture. Jonah was a genuine, bona fide, premier prophet. He was God's servant. He was not a charlatan, was not an attention seeker, he was the real deal. And he lived in the 8th century BC, of course, in the northern kingdom. He was a prophet of the north, not of Judah. So that's Jonah in short. His ministry, as I said, was primarily in the north, north Israel, also called Samaria, sometimes called Ephraim or Israel. And uh, the king at that time, while he was a prophet, was Jeroboam II. Now, Jeroboam I was a wicked king after the kingdom divided. Jeroboam I was the wicked king. And every other king after that was wicked. The kings of the north, not one of them was faithful. Okay? So the time that Jonah lived was Jeroboam II. But yet God was merciful towards Israel of the north uh, because he saw their pain. It says... In 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 27, this is during the ministry of Jonah, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned for 41 years, so he reigned quite a while. He did evil, notice he was a wicked king, all the kings of the north did evil, this was their epitaph, they did evil. that's all you could have written on their tombstone. He did evil. Next king, he did evil. It's like deja vu over and over. And he did not abandon all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which is the first Jeroboam, into which he misled Israel. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the sea of Araba, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath Heifer. So what happens here? You see, Israel was weak, and had invaders, but he restored the borders. He reinforced them because Jonah prophesied and the king, based on the prophecy of Jonah, reinforced the borders and God gave them reprieve. He basically had mercy on them. Notice verse 26, for the Lord saw the misery. In other words, They were disobedient, unfaithful. They were in a miserable state. But instead of repenting, they continued in disobedience. But the Lord held back on giving a further dosage of judgment. The Lord saw the misery of Israel, which was very bitter, for there was neither bond, which means a slave, nor free that was spared, nor was there any helper for Israel. Yet the Lord did not say that he would wipe out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So God used this evil king, this lawless king, this man who did not fear God and had mercy on Israel and through the ministry of Jonah was a blessing to the people, even though they were undeserving of this blessing from God. So that's Jonah's ministry in short. So he was a man used of God, a ministry that was blessed by God and was instrumental in the life of the people. Um, He was therefore blessed of God in his ministry. Now let's look at his birthplace. Very interesting. I want you to pay attention to this. And we just read this. In verse 25, through his servant Jonah the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. So you say, okay, so he was from Gath-Hefer. Anybody been there? Nobody, of course, right? Who knows Gath-Hefer? So when you read of the birthplace of Jonah, this place called Gath-Hefer, it's a town, um, it's easy to write it off as another insignificant, meaningless town, as there are thousands of them in Israel. But Gath-Hefer... Heifer, rather, is a significant mention. And to understand why it's important that this aspect, the birthplace of Jonah is important, is uh, significant, we need to read the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, we read of a a conversation between officers and the Pharisees. The Pharisees had sent these officers to somehow apprehend Jesus and bring uh, them to him. And there were chief priests and Pharisees together, okay? They were cahoots. These were the leaders of the Jewish people in Jerusalem and said, go get him, bring him to us. The officers then came to the chief priest. priest. They came back. Um, John 7, verse 45, and the Pharisees. And they said to them, so why did you not bring him? They said, where is he? You went out. We sent you out to get him. Why didn't you bring him back? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken in this way. They were mesmerized by the teachings of Jesus. The Pharisees then replied to them, you have not been led astray too, have you? Not one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him. Nobody believes in this guy. But this crowd does does not know the law that does not know the law story, is accursed. So Nicodemus, the one who came to him before being one of them, so he's a Pharisee as well, said to his fellow Pharisees, our law does not judge the person unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? Notice their answer. They answered and said to him, you are not from Galilee as well, are you? Examine the scriptures and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. He can't be a true prophet. He's from Galilee. Of course, he was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth, right? Jesus was from Galilee. and Nazareth, It was in Galilee. And if you read in the book of Kings, uh, Galilee was the most depressed area in all of Israel. And Solomon gave that piece of land, the Galilean land, to another king as a gift. And when this king came, Hiram, his name was King Hiram, came and saw the line. He says, this is Kabul. It's it's junk. It's garbage. What are you giving me this for? This is not even worth my time to come and visit this place. That's what Galilee was part of. On the book of Isaiah, we're told that the uh, blessing of the Lord will arise from Galilee. And from the seashore, Naphtali and Zebulun, because that's where Galilee is, God would send a blessing to his people, which means Christ would come from Galilee, right? And so here the Pharisees are saying, listen, there's not one prophet, not one of all the prophets. Now, you would think these Pharisees would be well-versed in Scripture, and they were. They knew the Bible or the Old Testament by heart, any of them. So, how come they said this? Because this is the thing. Gath heifer is in Galilee. That's where it is. It's in Galilee. So, there is a prophet that comes from Galilee, Jonah. And they missed this other sign altogether. They kept missing signs because they were blind to the truth. An additional sign that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Let's look at Jonah's inward disposition. I want you to notice one more fact about Jonah before we delve into the verses. His name. His name in Hebrew means dove. That's what it means, dove. It's an unusual name. Uh, and of course, there are several, several references in Scripture to doves. Turtle doves would be brought as a sacrifice. You'll remember that. When Jesus himself was presented at the, tab- at the temple rather, on his eighth day, Mary and Joseph brought turtle doves because they were poor. They couldn't bring an actual animal. So doves appear throughout Scripture. Noah, for example, from his ark, sends out a dove and so forth. There, everywhere throughout Scripture you'll see doves and here and there scattered throughout the Scriptures. But never do you see this instance except one about the Holy Spirit being associated with a dove. When Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, the Holy Spirit, it says, descended on him. Now, the Holy Spirit descended on many individuals, even on the day of Pentecost, but never in this way. He comes in the form of a dove. Why in the form of a dove? It doesn't appear before, it doesn't appear after. Because Jesus' ministry was in gentleness and in meekness. He did not raise his voice, it says. He did not draw attention to himself. It was the word that he would share and he went about doing good. He said, Come to me, all of you who are thirsty, and I will give you to drink, and from your innermost being, rivers of water will flow from you. He was a gentle and meek teacher, and he was a man who had eventually laid down his life in complete compliance to God's will as a propitiation. For our sins, he, come, he came in gentleness. When he comes the second time, he doesn't come in gentleness at all. It says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Notice the angels are going to be coming in flaming fire. Already angels are terrifying. Imagine the terror when angels come in flaming fire. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These people will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified among his saints on that day and to be marveled. And among all who have believed. He doesn't come in gentleness. He does not come back in meekness. He comes as the ruling king. With his scepter of authority. And he will execute judgment. He comes to judge. So there is a difference now when he will be revealed the second time in this world. So Jonah was a dove-like individual, gentle, kind. He was faithful. He was at work in the kingdom that God had placed him in to be a prophet. And he was used of God to bring the people back from their wicked ways so they would repent and God would restore the nation of Israel that had swerved away from the path of godliness and had left God altogether. So he was faithful in carrying out his mission even amongst an unfaithful people. He was therefore a man of God. Now when we look at verse 3, we look at this irrational response. It says in verse 3, but Jonah, when God speaks to him, Jonah got up, got up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, this Tarshish is the biggest word is most likely it is a place in Spain, but some say it means Tarsus. It doesn't matter. It's not in Israel. And I'll tell you why it's not in Israel. When we read that he fled from the presence of the Lord, it doesn't make any sense. I'll tell you why. Because Jonah was a prophet. Jonah was not your regular Blow who had very little understanding of Scripture. He knew something about God which every prophet knew, that God is omnipresent. This is an absolute attribute of God. There's some attributes that are relative, right? For example, faithfulness is a relative attribute. Why? Because we are called to be faithful. Holiness is a relative attribute. We are called to be holy. Omnipresent is a divine, absolute attribute. We cannot be omnipresent. We cannot be omniscient, right? We, We cannot be omnipotent. These are absolute. We cannot be infinite. God is infinite. Uh, and all these other attributes of God, uh, the aseity of God, the fact that he's without beginning, without end, and that he is self-sustaining. We, can't, we don't have that. right? We are immortal beings as God has given us immortality, but we have a beginning and we continue, whether with God throughout eternity or away from the presence of God in a place of torment for, throughout eternity. But we are not uh, without beginning, without end, this is totally uh, God's attributes, and only God. And Jonah knew this. So why did Jonah escape from the presence of the Lord? Jonah knew what David had said many years earlier in, uh, in the Psalms. Psalm 139 is a very well-known passage. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the place of the dead, behold, you are there. If I take up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will take hold of me. If I say surely, darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. You won't see me. Even darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as day. Darkness and light are light to you. Did Jonah not know this passage? Of course he did. He knew it well. So what does it mean that he ran from the presence of the Lord? See, the land of Israel was the land associated with the God Yahweh, the God of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one, which is the Shema. They would pronounce this over and over. The Lord is one. Israel, Every Israelite knew, knew this. This is what the people um, of God would hear when the sons of Aaron would stand up and pronounce these words. So when he ran from the presence of the Lord, it simply means that he packed his bags and he left Israel. He just took off from the land where he used to minister, decided to have nothing to do with Israel. Why? Why did he leave Israel? Why did he leave Israel? Because he did what every sinful, rebellious man does. He wanted to depart from the will of God. And this is so unlike him. Why did he think, what was his rationale in thinking that God would somehow abort his plan and let and abandon it altogether just because his servant would leave the land that associated with his name? Why would he think that? But somehow he believed this. Jonah was dead set in not obeying God. Now, you may say, how could a prophet so blessed by God, a premier prophet, Bonafide, not a charlatan, not self seeking, one who feared God, used by God, and a blessing to his people, why would he do something like this? Why would he turn his back on the God who called him, this anointed man, because all prophets were anointed, this man who was called of God, why would he turn his back on God? See, Jonah cracked. He would rather die than go to Nineveh. He would rather be killed by God than preach to the Ninevites. Remarkable, isn't it? That's how deep-seated his rebellion was. Very deep-seated. Verse 2, and we'll read about his impasse here. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city cry out against it because their wickedness has come up before me cry out against it because their wickedness has come up before me what does that mean their wickedness has come up before me when God appeared to Abraham Abraham many many years earlier before there was a nation of Israel God spoke to Abraham saying that this is the land I'm going to give you but not yet your descendants will be slaves And then they will be delivered from their slavery, brought into uh, this land. Because the sins of the Amorites has not reached its point where I have to manifest my wrath. God says this to Abraham. So when the sins of the Ninevites had reached God, it meant that they had accumulated vileness over vileness and wickedness over wickedness and godlessness, godlessness over godlessness and lawlessness over lawlessness that now it had come to the point that God had no choice but to judge. I've often told you that angels are not beings of mercy. They only minister to those who are heirs of salvation, as it says in Hebrews chapter 1. right? But they're not beings of mercy. They are beings of justice. And they judge. And they are all too eager to judge. Because they hold dearly the holiness and the honor of their creator, their God. And when the time will come, these flaming angels will destroy and will punish. They will throw the tares into the furnace, as Jesus says in his parable, the tares and the wheat. So when the wickedness is expressed here, it meant that the wickedness had reached the the actual border, right? The rim of the cup. It was overflowing. And God was going to judge. Now, we need to understand what kind of wickedness we're talking about. Um, Here's what we know about Nineveh. First, it was a very big city. It would take three days, according to the book of Jonah, three days, to walk from one end of the city to the other. So this metroplex was a large one, and it had a very elaborate architecture. The city walls were able to have three chariots on the walls, uh, basically side by side, racing along the walls. This was a, a competition, a favorite competition of the Ninevites. I'm not sure why up on the walls. Maybe they didn't have streets, you know. But there they were able to ride. The um, Ninevites were extremely wicked, which was the case most often when it came to big cities. They were known to be so cruel that they would boast about their cruelty. Um, there are hieroglyphics uh, dating back to the Assyrian Empire, because Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, that depict the most graphic forms of cruelty. Each time the Assyrians conquered a people, they would skin them alive, doesn't matter what age, women, men, children, bury them alive and leave their heads sticking out, and then they would take, pull out their tongues and drive a stake through their tongues into the ground so they would languish, this way until they died. Um, in addition, they would rape, of course, women and young girls and kill them and boast about it. Boasting was a very big thing with them. One account describes how they would take enemy soldiers and impale them alive outside the city gates. Other times, they would just behead all the people of a certain city because they had refused them entry. They would decapitate every single one and then make a mound with these skulls outside of the city, and they would leave this mountain of skulls as a message to everyone, this is what happens to those who oppose the Assyrians. So Jonah was fully aware of the brutality and the cruel war machine that Assyria had become. They were conquerors. And Israel itself, Uh, was located to the south of Assyria. And Syria would often make incursions into Israel and Israel would become the target of this cruel empire of the Assyrians. And so Jonah may have had members of his family, friends that he knew that had been uh, either killed or raped or taken captive by the Ninevites. Now today many of us are look at the images that are on our news feed coming from Ukraine, and we say, what an evil man Putin is. Oh, why doesn't God just get rid of him? Why doesn't God remove this Putin? Why does he allow this? Well, Putin is it's kindergarten stuff to what, compared to what these guys did. The Assyrians did far worse, far worse. Putin is, is a, um, he's just a, a child compared to the Assyrians. You can't compare the brutality of the Assyrians with the brutality of Putin. It's not even close. Putin is an angel, really. So, when we look at Jonah, this dove-like, faithful servant of God, anointed by God, successful in in obeying God, we look at his reaction, and it is so... Uh, unlike, uncharacteristic of him to respond this way until we understand the Ninevites. Then we understand their evil, their brutal and cruel ways, and we say, well, did Jonah react this way because of the Ninevites? Had Jonah been sent to Judah to the kingdom of the south, he would have gone. That was still. God's covenant people. Had God told uh, uh, Jonah to do some other act like Ezekiel did, right, to maybe have his wife die, he would have surrendered. But when God asked him to go to the Ninevites, to the kingdom of the north, the empire called Assyria, and there cry out against Nineveh, he said, no, I can't do this. This is too much for me. I won't do it. And he decides to leave the land, go AWOL, and make his trip to Tarshish. Why did he do it? Why did he do it? Because I've often read the book of Jonah, and when I would read this, I'd say, well, if God is telling me to go somewhere and preach the gospel, I would do it. Right? Who wouldn't? And servant served the Lord, Go and preach the gospel. First reason why Jonah refused. First reason. God's covenant people was Israel. No prophet in the entire Old Testament was ever called to go outside of Israel. None. None. Moses is the only prophet that went to Egypt because Israel was in, was in slavery in Egypt. But after that, Prophet spoke to God's people because they are the covenant people. They are the ones with whom God has a relationship. No prophet goes to the Moabites, to the Egyptians, to the Assyrians, to the Babylonians. Nobody. This is God's covenant people. This is where we preach. This is where we serve. The covenant is between God and us and no one else. And that is true. The Old Covenant, Old Testament of the Bible is therefore a reminder that God is a covenant God. Even in the New Testament, the New Covenant speaks about the covenant that God has with the church through Jesus Christ. It's not a covenant that we chose. It is a covenant that He installed through the sacrifice of His Son. And today we are here to remember this covenant and to celebrate it, and to thank him for it. Jonah knew this. They have no covenant with you. Let them be as wicked as they want to be. Destroy them for all I care. Get rid of them. Who cares? This is your people, not them. The covenant is with us. That's the first thing. The second thing is that Jonah did not know that his heart was different from the heart of God. Completely different. God's heart is one of mercy. It is one of forgiveness. And it goes far beyond the people of Israel. And Jonah could not understand this. In fact, this was so shocking for Jonah. So difficult to embrace that he was willing to die, later on we'll see this, he was willing to die rather than go to Nineveh. God's heart is far more compassionate, more graceful. I remember reading about Jonah and saying to myself, you know, if I was in his shoes, I would have responded, I would have said, yes, Lord, I'll go to Nineveh. But now I would say differently. Was I, Jonah, in that day, I would have done the same thing had I been with the understanding that Jonah had, I know my heart now. We are not obedient people. How many of us of us have been uh, convicted by the Spirit to forgive someone? I did a series on forgiveness, and we've chosen yet not to forgive. Or to ask forgiveness from someone whom we've hurt, and we've not asked forgiveness. We are stubborn sometimes in our ways. We'd rather protect ourselves and... Engage in self-preservation rather than in self-denial. And rather giving God the glory, we give ourselves a lot of importance. And Jonah here could not humble himself before this great, magnificent, compassionate God. He could not accept it. And we're going to see how God's compassion disturbed Jonah that God's mercy troubled this servant deeply as we go through this book. You see, he could not see the wretchedness of his heart. In fact, throughout the book, Jonah remains an angry man. Never once does he acknowledge that he is angry with God. In Romans 7, verse 24, Paul says these words about himself, wretched man that I am. What is he saying? That which I would do is what? Is contrary to the law. So when the law says I should do this, I will do the opposite. When the law says don't do this, I end up doing it. Oh, wretched man that I am. Let me close with another servant. It's far different from Jonah. He was from Galilee as well. And he was dove-like as well, gentle and meek. But this servant obeyed all the way. We're not talking about anyone from the Old Testament because all Old Testament servants fell short in one way or another, but not this servant. We're talking about the bond servant, the one who did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself of no reputation and became a bond servant. A bondservant was someone that served at the pleasure of the master. He had no free time. He had no inheritance. He had no family. He had no uh, reputation to preserve. He was a servant. And Christ made himself a bondservant. The lowest ranking servant there possibly could be. That's what Jesus did of himself. When Jesus said these words in John chapter 6, verse 38, For I've come down from heaven. Notice what he said, from heaven. Should they not have perked their ears? He came from heaven. This man did not simply come from Galilee. This man was not simply a human, he was more than that. He was divine. I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And he learnt obedience through suffering. None of the things that Jesus did, none of the life that he lived was pleasant. None of it. It was completely unpleasant. From the very moment he was born to the very moment he died, it was an unpleasant chapter in the history of humanity. Not because awful things were going around in this world, because of the most horrific things were going on in the life of the Son of God. He obeyed fully. And if it were not for his obedience, what obedience would you have to bring before the Father? Tell me. Can you stand before God and say, here's my plate of obedience throughout my life. It qualifies me to enter heaven. Can you do that? Not only does his death deal with our sins so that they're removed from us as far as the east is from the west, but the righteousness of Christ, which means his obedient life every single day is equally imputed to us, so that now when I come before God, I do not bring my obedience, because my obedience falls woefully short, but I bring before him his obedience, and through the obedience of Christ, I am now accepted by the Father. Aren't you grateful that The true Jonah did not turn his back because had he said no, then where would we be today? We would be eternally lost. But the Jonah of heaven never says no. The Jonah of heaven says yes to the Father. And though he's in the garden praying, saying, if it were possible, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. What an amazing Savior, What an amazing God, so that now we can come before him and thank him for his grace that has made us a new creation in Christ Jesus. Let's thank him together. Father in heaven, we come before you and we give you glory and thanks for all that you've done in doing that which we could never have conceived, the amazing plan of redemption, that was conceived in the mind of the triune God. God the Father, sending the Son, who was empowered by the Spirit to live a life of obedience and then ultimately to die on the cross for us. Thank you for that, Lord, thank you. How can we thank you enough and we praise you for he is the true Jonah that you sent for us who deserved punishment. And he did cry out. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was crushed so that we could be saved. Lord, we praise you for this and we give you glory. We thank you that we have embraced this amazing message because you have drawn us to yourself. And for those who have yet to be drawn to you, draw them even now. In your mercy, draw more. O Lord, so that your Son's name would be glorified. And this we pray in the wonderful and glorious name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.